I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25, as we come to the last section of our Lord's Olivet Discourse. Matthew chapter 25, and we begin this morning in verse 31. And I've entitled my message to you this morning, King Jesus Enthroned on Earth. Matthew 25, 31. Follow along as I read. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. I often find myself getting lost in the wonder of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a scene beyond imagination. All other scenes that we can possibly imagine pale into utter insignificance in comparison to his physical return to this earth. Nothing in history can possibly compare to this. This will be a time when his patience has reached its limit. When all of the mockers and scoffers on earth have caused his nostrils to flare in righteous indignation, when he will descend in wrath, This will be a time when he comes in power and in great glory to judge the wicked and to establish the long-promised millennial kingdom. This will be that time when, according to the Lord's word through the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Now, folks, this is very different from the smiley-faced Jesus of contemporary neo-evangelicalism. 
the Jesus that has been recently invented that kind of winks at sin and giggles at our mistakes and kind of oozes with a sentimental love and tolerance of every imaginable moral evil and theological perversion. This is very different from the malleable Jesus that people go to in the prosperity group and try to somehow manipulate him to release some of his goodies from his stingy little fingers. And difference, this is even different from the meek and lowly Jesus of the Gospels when he came as a lamb that opened not his mouth. But no, at his second coming, the days of grace will be over. The days of mercy will be over. The time of forgiveness will be past. As well as the days of demeaning, malicious ridicule and indifference. Well, this should be no surprise to any student of Scripture. After the fall of man in the garden in Genesis 3.15, we read of a deliverer that was promised, one that would be coming someday that would descend from the seed of Eve, one that would eventually defeat the serpent and all who belong to him. And as we look at the genealogical record in Genesis 5, we see that Adam lived 930 years. Imagine that, 930 years to see the ravages of sin in his life. Can you imagine that? He saw sin decimate his family. He saw sin turn the Garden of Eden into something radically different that we now must endure with everything from thorns to mosquitoes and ticks. I don't know if they had chiggers there, but probably. And it's interesting that one of... Adam's descendants was a man by the name of Enoch. And Enoch prophesied about this coming deliverer, a coming day of judgment that has been known all throughout redemptive history. By the way, before I tell you about his prophecy, Adam was still alive when Enoch lived. In fact, Enoch lived in Adam's seventh generation And Enoch would have been one who would have had a first-hand account of creation from his descendant Adam. He would have been able to have talked to him. He would have heard from Adam about the garden, about the fall, about Cain and Abel and so on. And, of course, he would have passed all of this on to his son, Enoch's son, who was Methuselah. And it's interesting that Methuselah would have passed all of that on to Noah In fact, Methuselah overlapped Adam by 200 years and Noah for 600 years. And therefore, one man bridged all the way from Adam to Noah. Not only that, Noah overlapped his son Shem for 400 years and Abraham died before Shem. Now, think of this. Shem would have therefore been able to have told Abraham a first-hand account of the flood. In fact, Shem was even alive through the lives of Isaac and Jacob. Now, my point with all of this is simply to say that all of these men knew about sin and anticipated a day of judgment. For hundreds of years, they witnessed the metastasizing corruption of sin. They saw God's judgment in the flood. They saw God's judgment in the fire and the brimstone that destroyed the Sodomites in Sodom and Gomorrah. And all of them anticipated the promised coming deliverer. And here's what Enoch's prophecy was that God gave him. By the way, you will recall that Enoch, uh, in Genesis 5.24, we find that he was the man that that walked with God and he was not for God took him. A beautiful picture of the rapture of the church. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit concerning this coming deliverer, we read in Jude 14 and 15 what Enoch 
was told. Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And dear friends, it is this long anticipated judgment that Jesus describes here in these closing words of his Olivet Discourse. In fact, you might be interested to know that Jesus talked more about judgment than any other person in all of Scripture. Although he is merciful, although he is long-suffering, although he is patient toward you, according to 2 Peter 3.9, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance, although he came to seek and to save that which was lost, although he came to be a ransom for sinners and he came to redeem sinners that were worthy only of his wrath. Dear friends, there is a limit to his patience and a limit to his invitation. So today we look at King Jesus enthroned on earth. And this will unfold in three very basic categories as we look at the text. First, we will see, number one, the majestic spectacle of the king enthroned. Secondly, we will see the glorious inheritance of the king's loyal subjects. And thirdly, we will see the condemnation and execution of the king's rebellious enemies. So first, let's marvel at the majestic spectacle of the king enthroned. Notice in verse 31, Jesus begins, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Now, it's interesting that this scene is not found in other Gospels. No doubt the reason for this is because Matthew's emphasis in his Gospel is the sovereign king, the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, more than any other, Matthew's gospel is replete with revelation concerning the king's return. Now, can you imagine the scene? Can you imagine such a majestic spectacle? The Lord Jesus Christ descending on earth in his pre-incarnate glory. To think that he will come and to make it even more magnificent, he's going to be attended by the heavenly hosts, the holy angels. The scene will be the most awesome, ineffable scene in the history of the world. One that will cause saints to weep with joy and sinners to melt in terror. Now, we must remember the context of our Lord's words. Jesus has been speaking to his disciples concerning the signs that will lead up to his return. He's been talking about the importance of being ready spiritually and of serving him. And he's particularly speaking to that group of people that come to a saving knowledge of himself during the time of the tribulation. And now he concludes with this magnificent scene of of unrivaled royalty and sobering judgment. And notice what he says, the Son of Man comes in his glory. Dear friends, when he comes again, all of the days of obscurity and humility will be over. All of that is past. The meek and gentle Savior does not come as a lamb that opens not his mouth, but as the roaring lion of the tribe of Judah. God spoke through Jeremiah prophecies concerning both the immediate and future judgment of the Lord. And here's what he said in Jeremiah 25, beginning in verse 30. The Lord will roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He will roar mightily against his foal. He will shout like those who tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. A clamor has come to the end of the earth because the Lord has a controversy with the nations. He is entering into judgment with all flesh. As for the wicked, he has given them to the sword, declares the Lord. And in verse 38, we read that he has left his hiding place like the lion. For their land has become a horror 
because of the fierceness of the oppressing sword and because of his fierce anger. Now, friends, this should not surprise anyone who has read about the coming judgments upon the earth during the time of the tribulation. Indeed, the land will become a horror because of the fierceness of his oppressing sword and the fierceness of his anger. The seal judgments in the book of Revelation and the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments will literally render this earth to be nothing more than a toxic wasteland, unfit for human or animal habitation. So the Son of Man will come in glory, he says. We read more about this, for example, in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 and 8. The Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now, Jesus has already told them when this will occur. In chapter 24, verses 29 and 31, it will occur immediately after the tribulation. The tribulation of those days when the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels. Now, again, try to wrap your mind about this around this scene. The planet now has been virtually devastated by divine judgment. Again, the judgments of Revelation 6 through 19 have basically killed the majority of the earth's inhabitants. And both the, the saved and the unsaved who have survived the Holocaust of the tribulation will suddenly... See, the lights of heaven turned out. The text says that there will be a violent shaking even in the heavens. And all of the stars begin to move in ways that we can't imagine and the planets. And then the unthinkable happens. Suddenly, in the midst of all of that chaos, in the midst of all of that darkness, the Lord Jesus Christ appears in all of his glory. And if that isn't enough, he is accompanied by the heavenly host. And if that isn't enough, all of you who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ will be with him and them. Do you realize that? Colossians 3 and verse 4 says, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So this includes all of the Old Testament saints, all of those who have died during the church age, those who have been raptured, the raptured saints, and even those who have been martyred during the tribulation. Well, God has revealed even more of this scene in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 4 and 5. There we read how that he will descend upon the Mount of Olives. By the way, the very place where the angels announced his ascension. And in chapter 14 of Zechariah, beginning in verse 4, we read that when this happens, the mount, referring to the Mount of Olive, will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. In other words, the Lord will radically alter the topography of Jerusalem. To make it fit for his glorious habitation. And then in verse 5 in Zechariah 14, he says, Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. And it will come about in that day that there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But it will come about that at evening time there will be light. And certainly that light will be the light of the glory of Christ. Dear friends, you must understand that on that coming day of judgment, no one will be able to ignore him. No one will miss him because the glory of the Lord will be the only source of illumination. 
often people will ask, well, I wonder what's going to happen to all of the people, especially those who hate Israel. Well, Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 12 tells us about that. He says that the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. And here's what's going to happen to them. And by the way, you see all of these pictures of all of these nuclear warheads and we're going to wipe Israel off the face of the earth and you hear all of this stuff. Here will be their demise lest they repent. God says in Zechariah 14:12, their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. Now, dear friends, this shouldn't surprise anyone, for God promised Abraham that I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And do you think God was just making conversation? He also says in Zechariah 2.8 that anyone that touches his chosen people will stir up his wrath because he says, he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. Can you imagine anything more obscene than people poking their finger in God's eye by cursing his people? In Revelation 6, beginning in verse 15, we have a description of the rest of the people who are left when the Lord returns. It says that they hid themselves in the caves. And among the rocks of the mountains, and they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And also, my friends, because of this cataclysmic upheaval on the Mount of Olives, a new valley will be formed. We believe this to be the Valley of Jehoshaphat, sometimes called the Valley of Decision. And this will be the place where the king will judge all of the peoples. And God speaks through the prophet Joel describing this unimaginable event when the warrior king returns. In Joel chapter 3, beginning in verse 12, we read, Let the nations be aroused and come up to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. By the way, Jehoshaphat means Jehovah judges. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all of the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. In other words, the harvest of judgment. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. And then beginning in verse 15, of Joel 3, we read, The sun and the moon will grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness, and the Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for His people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know, then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain, so Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. Well, as we go back to Matthew 25, after the king is enthroned in all of his glory, in verse 32, we read that all of the nations will be gathered before him. What is the first act of the king when he arrives? To separate the sheep from the goats, the saved from the lost. Now, friends, there's only two kinds of people in the world, and it's not male and female. It's simply this, those that know and love the truth and those that are deceived and hate the truth, the saved and the unsaved, two types of people. And here Jesus describes them as the sheep and the goats. Now, the context here is important. This would have been a very familiar illustration to the people in those days. Shepherds, obviously, would have sheep and goats. Sheep are rather easy, easy to deal with, even though they're unbelievably stupid. And they, they, they tend to wander off in, in, in ways, and you have to watch over them. But nevertheless, they're rather easily herded, but not so with goats. 
They are not mild-mannered like the sheep. They are much harder to manage, and they will typically cause great conflict with the sheep. And so very often the shepherds would separate the sheep from the goats when it came time to eat and came time to bed down. And this is the picture that Jesus uses now to describe the pre-kingdom judgment when he arrives on the earth. For in that great day of this divine discrimination, you must understand, it will not matter what denomination or what religion these people belong to, these people that come out of the tribulation. It will not matter what their social status might be or their political affiliation. All of that will be utterly insignificant. Whether prince or peasant, whether king or slave, whether rich or poor, the only thing that will matter will be the object of their faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly for the sheep, that will be true. For the goats, they will have faith in a myriad of other things, but certainly not the Lord Jesus. And I might add that the coming king has no tolerance for anyone who denies that he alone is the Savior of sinners. Dear friends, the Lord of hosts is utterly unconcerned about being politically correct or religiously tolerant. He has said in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. All that will matter on that day, all that will determine the destiny of men's souls will be faith in Christ alone, which will be validated by their works, as we will see. So first we see our Savior and King enthroned in, in, in his majesty. He's appearing in his glory, the glory of, as of the only begotten of the Father. He will, he will reveal himself in the glorious perfections of, of his deity Glories that were only slightly revealed in his transfiguration when it shone forth from his flesh. Now it will be fully disclosed. And his, and his first act as earthly king will be to separate the sheep from the goats. And the sheep will be the ones that will enter into his millennial kingdom. For indeed the Father has given the Son that authority. And Jesus has said earlier in John 5:22 that not even the father judges anyone but he has given all judgment to the son in order that all may honor the son even as they honor the father well secondly Jesus de- describes the glorious inheritance of the king's loyal subjects and notice the term here the nations that are gathered before him In Greek, the ethna, or literally the peoples. These will be all of the peoples who have survived the great tribulation, both the saved and the unsaved. All will stand before him in this valley of decision. And first, he describes those he places on his right, which, by the way, was the customary Jewish position for those who would receive their father's blessing. And in verse 34, he says, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I want you to notice something with me for a moment. Notice that admission to the kingdom has nothing to do with personal merit. It has nothing to do with human achievement. It has nothing to do with one's religious affiliation or one's individual righteousness, but rather it has everything to do with the sovereign grace of God. Those who will inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And may I remind you that in the inscrutable mysteries of God, he chose those whom he would save before time began. Indeed, we read in 2 Timothy 1.9, He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Or literally, before time began. And Jesus then declares that our inheritance was prepared from the foundation of the world. And again, this is the amazing doctrine of sovereign election. 
which should drench all of us with utter humility. Because, dear friends, when we understand this, we rejoice in his sovereign grace and we can share in none of the glory for our salvation. We read in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13 that God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. In Ephesians 1 and verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In Romans 8, 29, we read whom he foreknew, which, by the way, means foreloved with an intimate affection. Whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Now notice he addresses the saints on his right who will be granted entrance into the kingdom, saying, verses 35 and 6, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. I find it fascinating that Jesus underscores here a truth that is often neglected, again, in our neo-evangelical definition of Christian, namely that faith without works is dead. Because what he's saying here is you validated the genuineness of your faith by what you did. We read, for example, in James chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, if a brother or sister, in other words, if another believer, is without clothing and in need of daily food, And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Now, you must remember that works do not earn salvation, but indeed they prove it. And it's sad. So many times I will hear Christians turn a deaf ear to the cries of other Christians. Sometimes even within their own church family. Those that are in need. And it's easy to see the need and kind of look the other way and think that somebody else will take care of it. Oh, brother, I'll, I'll, I'll be praying for you. Yes. And offer some perfunctory prayer. Dear friends, you must be very careful with that because such an attitude really betrays that perhaps you are not united to faith in Christ. Because that's not indicative of one who bears the image of Christ and is united to him. Because you you see, true saving faith is not measured by one's past profession, but by one's present and continuous pattern of Christ-likeness. In this case, self-sacrificial love and benevolence. Well, certainly the persecuted saints during the time of the tribulation will have to depend upon one another to survive. And here Jesus praises their self-sacrificial love for one another, which, again, gives evidence to their conversion. And then it's interesting, with self-effacing humility now, the people that stand before the king, the one who has now condescended so low to take note of them, say this in verses 37 and 39, Lord, when did we do, and then it lists all of those, those things, when, when did we do these things? It's as if they, they, they are blushing with disbelief. At the Lord's notice of of their humble acts of kindness. It's like they're they're incredulous with the Lord's appraisal of them. Because they understand that that such patterns of of selfless love are natural. It's just natural to them. It's like, what, what, what are you talking? When did we do this? And in verse 40, the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, Even the least of them, you did it to me. Again, notice the intimacy here of the king towards his loyal subjects and his care for his own, his care for the brothers of mine, as he says. Beloved, let's don't miss this point. 
to the extent that we demonstrate sacrificial love to one another in the body of Christ, we demonstrate love to Christ. You see? I mean, think about this, especially those of you that are parents, and even if you're not, you can, you can get the idea. When somebody does something special to one of my children or one of my grandchildren who's in need, they, they've done something special to me. They've demonstrated love to me through, by helping them. And that's the idea here. So Jesus makes it clear that these on his right, the sheep, will be the ones who are, as he says, blessed by the Father. And who will, according to verse 34, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So we've seen the majestic spectacle of the king enthroned. And we've now seen the glorious inheritance of the king's loyal subjects. But thirdly, we must look at the condemnation and execution of the king's rebellious enemies as we continue this first-hand account of an event that will actually take place in some day future. Notice verses 41 and 45. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't list extreme sins of of diabolical wickedness that many of them had committed? He he doesn't mention that, that the people were rapists or murderers, even though many of them were. He doesn't mention sins of of gross sexual immorality. He simply exposes their utter indifference towards his own family, family. He simply exposes those acts of compassion and benevolence towards those who were suffering because of the name of Christ. The reason those people were suffering, his brothers and sisters, was because they worshipped the king. Many of them would have, will have, or will refuse to bear the mark of the beast. And they will suffer because of that. You know, we see this even today. Of course, it will be much worse during the Holocaust of the Tribulation. But we see it today, don't we? I mean, from the ACLU to, to the liberal media. Anything that smacks of genuine biblical Christianity is a target of hate and discrimination at worst and disdain and indifference at best. How much worse it will be during the time of tribulation. And when people treat believers that way, it will be a certain indication that they are not united to Christ. For this reason, verse 41, he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Again, folks, what an unimaginable scene of divine justice here. Those who reject Christ will be executed on the spot. They will instantly be thrown into an eternal inferno. The very place prepared for the devil that they served. A place of infinite suffering. Because of sin, all because they refused to accept the Savior's genuine offer of grace and forgiveness, all because of their lack of faith in Christ, their souls will instantly be placed in the abyss of torment. There they will remain for a thousand years. And then, according to Jesus' words in John 5, 28 and 29, as well as other passages, after the the, the end of the thousand years, their bodies will be resurrected and united with their eternally cursed souls. And then the, those, those bodies will be fashioned into an indestructible body designed to withstand the eternal torments of hell. Folks, Scripture is very clear that hell is a real place, a real place of eternal torment. Heaven is a place of endless fellowship and light. And hell is a place of endless isolation and night. It is beyond language and imagination to describe the the miseries of hell. I could no more do that than I could describe the glories of heaven. 
But as we study the Scripture, we see it will be a place of eternal suffering. And it's sad that I have friends and loved ones who are now there. And you do too. It is a place of eternal isolation. No friendship. No consolation. A place of infinite rage and blasphemies against the God they despised. So in verse 46 he says, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That great 19th century preacher and theologian J.C. Ryle says this concerning this scene. And I quote, Let believers think of this and take comfort. He that sits upon the throne in that great and dreadful day will be their savior, their shepherd, their high priest, their elder brother, their friend. When they see him, they will have no cause to be alarmed. Let unconverted people think of this and be afraid. Their judge will be that very Christ whose gospel they now despise and whose gracious invitations they refuse to hear. How great will be their confusion at last. If they go on in unbelief and die in their sins, to be condemned in the day of judgment by anyone would be dreadful. But to be condemned by him who would have saved them will be dreadful indeed. Well, may the psalmist say, well, may the psalmist say, kiss the son, lest he be angry. Psalm 2 and verse 12, end quote. I want to digress for a moment. Hell, eternal hell, is very hard for many people to understand these days. In these days of apostasy, for the most part, the glorious attributes of God have been utterly eviscerated from Him and have been replaced with all kinds of superficial, silly stuff, all of the theological ebonics that would somehow describe a God that doesn't even exist. And friends, I want to just remind you that this God that has been redefined to somehow meet people's expectations is not the God of the Bible. The, the, the Jesus today is kind of this, this, this effeminate um, peace activist. You know, you know some, some great teacher that just kind of walks around and just, just loves everybody the same. But folks, that is not the Lord Jesus Christ of the Bible. You must understand this. And if I can simply summarize it for you, you've got to remember that God is holy. And that holiness in the Bible is the all-encompassing attribute of God. The triagion of Scripture. In other words, the thrice holy God. Remember, this was the cry of the seraphim in in Isaiah uh, five and Isaiah six, I should say, when they cried out to the Lord as they hovered around the throne, "Holy, holy, holy." And so, when we think of God, we must remember that His holiness literally portrays His consummate perfection and and His eternal glory, and it stands as the defining characteristic of His person. His holiness is the summation of all of his attributes. Now stick with me for a moment. No one can possibly fathom the love of God apart from first being humbled by the holiness of God and therefore trembling at the wrath of God when his holiness has been spurned, when his law has been violated. And because of God's holy justice, his anger is kindled against sinners because his holy law has been violated and because sin cannot go unpunished. His wrath must be appeased. It must be satisfied. It must be placated. And what's fascinating is when you read the scriptures, you will quickly find that God himself provided the means to appease his own wrath. What an amazing paradox. And folks, herein is the love of God. As 1 John 4.10 says, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Literally, the appeasement 
the satisfaction, the placation of the Father's wrath. So here's what's amazing. God had to provide the perfect substitute. One who was a man to die for men, but but one who was God to be the perfect and spotless lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. And dear friends, either we we seize this gift of grace through faith in Christ, who alone can satisfy the offended law of God, the offended holiness of God. Or we must be our own propitiation. And in order for you to satisfy God's righteous indignation, you will have to spend an eternity in hell. The point is you will never be able to do what Christ alone did. That's why there is an eternal place for righteousness and there is an eternal place for unrighteousness. There are only two remedies. God cannot exchange his wrath for love unless his justice is propitiated. And because of his infinite love, God has provided his son as a means of placating his own wrath. Now again, think of it this way. When by grace, God moves into the life of one who is spiritually dead, And suddenly he causes a sinner to be awakened from sin's slumber and behold the sword of divine justice that's looming over their head. When this happens, the terror and the fear of the Lord causes a person to cry out for mercy and grace. And then in his infinite love, he helps us to see the blood of the lamb that has satisfied the offended law. But again, such mercy could never be offered apart from the propitiation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the only one that could appease the divine wrath. So my point is simply this. Why spurn so great a salvation? And yet many have and many will. Well, the scene closes chilling scene here, the separation of the goats. And here in this final section of our Lord's prophetic discourse, we see the stark reality that awaits all those who have rejected the gospel. As we look at Scripture, we see basically that at this point the sheep will enter the millennial kingdom. You see, only believers will go into the kingdom. The others will be slain on the spot. Believers will go into the kingdom still in human bodies, just like ours. There will, of course, be a renovated earth. It will return to Edenic splendor. And Christ will personally rule and reign, and we will reign with him in glorified bodies. It will be like the time when the Lord interacted with those on earth after his resurrection in his glorified body. We will be the same way with those during the time of the millennial kingdom. The Bible tells us that Satan will be bound during the majority of that thousand-year reign and then released. There will be one final rebellion and he will be utterly defeated and cast into the lake of fire forever. And according to 1 Corinthians 15, we see this glorious summary of the end of it all beginning in verse 24 through verse 28 where the Spirit of God speaks through the Apostle Paul and says this, Then comes the end when he, referring to Christ, delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says... All things are put in subjection. It is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him. That God may be all in all. Well, I leave you with these thoughts. Judgment Day must surely come 
the law to satisfy. A holy God offended so no man can e'er deny. For some that day will welcomed be, no need to be distressed. Christ has paid their penalty, their faith has made them blessed. But those who spurn the gospel call, rejecting grace so free, will stand condemned to pay for all their sins eternally. Dear God, be pleased to stir the lost and cause them to believe, lest as fools they pay the cost and heaven never see. Let's pray together. Father, again, by your spirit and by your word, you have stirred our hearts as we are reminded afresh of that coming day of judgment and also reminded anew of the grace that has been given to us so rich and so free. And we praise you for that. Lord, I pray, Spirit of God, that you may sweep over the hearts of every sinner, those that do not know you as Savior, sweep over them with convicting truth and cause them this day to repent. And may it likewise stir every saint with a sense of urgency that we need to be about the Father's business, that nothing else really matters in life. Lord, may we lose ourselves and find ourselves completely in You. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.